podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Demp here. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you're sharing the show. Hope you're following the show. If you're not, you're missing out. This week on the show, we are talking with Eric Barker about his new book called Plays Well with Others. The surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong. And I really think that the title, although long and odd, is apropos. You know, as somebody who prides themselves in a somewhat of a relationship expert, and I don't mean that necessarily in marriage or anything, you know, ask my wife, I think she would disagree. But as a leadership development expert, I, I do spend a lot of time working on team dynamics and relationship dynamics, specifically in a professional setting. And what this episode taught me is that it is important to not only think about these things, but think about our paradigms, our beliefs, and our assumptions around these things, given that relationships are probably the most primary part of being on this planet. I mean, that's how I view it. That's why I wanted to have Eric on. He is the author of the best-selling book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, and the creator of the blog, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. His work has been mentioned in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Atlantic, Time, The Week, all goes on and on. He's also a former Hollywood screenwriter, having worked with Walt Disney Pictures, 20th Century Fox. He's a graduate of University of Pennsylvania and holds an MBA from Boston College and a Master of Fine Arts from UCLA. He's one of those very talented writers that can cover a nuanced topic in an entertaining way that allows you to get through the book, come out the other end, both enjoying it and having learned something. And what I've learned over the years is these types of guests are also the ones who can communicate their message the best, which makes for a great episode. If you agree, do something about it. If you're on Apple, there's a little button that says share this episode. Click that button, pull somebody up on your phone and say, hey, I think you need a brush up on relationships. All right. Or, or something along those lines. We're glad you're here. We hope you enjoy it. Let's kick it over to Eric Barker as we talk about his brand new book, Plays Well with Others, the surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong. Enjoy. I read something you wrote where you said, I hate relationship books. And then you went and wrote one. Yep. So tell me about that. Why? I, I, because I think most relationship books tell people what they want to hear. And I, you know, I, I think it's, it's it's largely like a feel feel good and feeling good's nice, but you know we 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 might need to be a little more fine grained in that fiction versus nonfiction distinction. 
So, uh, you know, I basically said, hey, I think we need some of the honest facts. And, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not seeing as much of that as I, I like. I mean, you know, you know, it's it's uh, so for me, I kind of went down the research rabbit hole and like focused on the maxims that we we all grew up with around relationships and decided to, you know, give these things the Mythbusters treatment and, you know, try to be pretty rigorous with the research and entertaining in the process. Yeah, and I love that approach you took. That there's numerous maxims. In fact, in preparing for the interview, I was like, well, I can't ask him about all of them, but which one? <laughs> and then I like to do this. It's a lazy man's trick, but it works because you're the expert. Out of all of them, which one do you think we get wrong the most? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I my my guess is that like each each section of the book, each maxim kind of presented its own challenges. You know, I, I addressed the issue of love conquers all. That's the and, one I wrote down. <laughs> well, well, that well, the thing about that one was there's mountains of research about love, marriage, and relationships. Yeah. You know, and then for friendship, you know, is a friend in need a friend indeed? You know, for friendship, there's like almost nothing. Like comparatively, there's so little. And friends, it shows you know that like friends are so important to our happiness, so important to our health, and yet. Like there's not that much research and frankly, friends get short shrifted. So it's, it's interesting to think about. I'd probably go with friends. I'd probably go with friends simply because I, I think it's such an important part of our life and it gets so neglected. And that's a good one. I'm definitely going to ask you about the relationship or the, um, the marriage one, the love yeah. conquers all, but the friendship one I struggle with. And here's why I'm a very outgoing person. I have rich uh, personal life. It's the thing I've always put before anything is really my relationships, my whole life. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes I'm like, yeah, this is putting science behind something that is human and that is natural. Tell me why we need to understand the details and the, the science and the research behind it rather than just like go out and be friends. I mean, simply because friendship gets so neglected. I mean, it's it's, you know, research by Daniel Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman and others shows that friends make us happier than any other relationship. Sorry, spouses. You know, friends make <laughs> us happier than any other. And even within a marriage, the most important part of the marriage ends up usually being the friendship. But the thing is that friendships don't friendships don't have an institution behind them. You know, it's like if, if you 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 if you stop liking your kids, they don't cease to be your kids. If you stop liking your spouse, spouse, they don't cease to be your spouse. You know, it's like but friends is the one relationship where there's no big institution behind it, there's no contract, there's nothing legal, there's no blood. So friendships are completely voluntary. And because of that, you know, they wither if we don't proactively keep up with them. And we see that, you know, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't talk to your spouse for two months, you know, expect divorce papers. You don't talk to your friends for two months. Eh, you know, it's like we, we, so we really need some help there. And especially in the modern era when people are just so busy, it's like to, to really realize like what's, what's going on there and what do we need to do? Because I, I think a lot of people are struggling, I think, between like the demands of spouse and family, between social media um, and then like, you know, let's not even get into the pandemic. I mean, I, I think friendships have really been neglected and I think we could we could use some help there. And like I said, we'll want to push past the truisms and, you know, and get to what really works. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the pandemic piece, because that's probably been, in my experience, the number one impactor on friendships, because I think. 
even as somebody who's extroverted, it was really easy during the pandemic to get comfortable being alone or just with my family. And now this re-release into the wild, there's a noticeable difference in how my friend group interacts, right? And I think everybody's kind of settled in. How do you think friendships were affected by the pandemic? Oh, I mean, you know, people just didn't see one another. I think, I think overall, I think it was, it was the issue of between the stress, the transition, you know, we just had less time. A lot of people had to be homeschooling. A lot of people had just added, added duties. You know, I think it was a lot much more difficult to see people and get together. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that, you know, one of, one of the research consistently points to them, one of the most critical things, you know, regarding friendships is simply time. You know, is that 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 is the thing that friends most often argue over. Uh, The thing that's was Notre Dame did a study of like eight million phone calls over the course of a year or so. And just what they found is that the thing that kept relation, the the correlate of relationships persisting was the fact that people stayed in touch like every two weeks or so. People who stayed in touch every two weeks, those relationships, those friendships were more likely to be sustained. You know, and I just think that like with without that time, with us being so busy, so stressed out, so many, you know, so so many restrictions, understandably, on our behavior. It's like friendships, again, they don't have a lobbying group, you know, pushing them like marriage, kids and work does. So it's like I think usually they're the they're the first thing to go. I mean, for a lot of people, you know, they they gather all their friends together for their wedding and promptly never see their friends again. Like, this is a very common phenomenon. I think that the pandemic just just accelerated that. I have this belief that the older you get, and I think particularly for men, this could be my own bias, but it's harder to make friends. And a lot of that is because it feels vulnerable. It, it feels like, oh, I need somebody else for my enjoyment or I need people for uh, something. Is there truth behind that in that it does get more difficult and it's often a feeling of almost weakness and having to make friends? I mean, you know, it, vulnerability is a huge part of it. When I talk about the two kind of things that deepen friendships, like in the friendship section, I, you know, I start out talking about Dale Carnegie and like, which is usually what most people turn to when it comes to friendships. But Carnegie's advice is usually at the beginning of relationships that's about meeting new people and it's and it's a little tilted more towards business towards influencing others not necessarily making those deep lasting friendships when talking about those deeper friendships the two critical things i talk about time which we just discussed and the other thing is vulnerability and vulnerabilities it's really hard because you know basically to say things that you know stuff that we're, we're scared about stuff that you know we have issues with you know that information could be used against you. People could see you in a bad way, and we're very reluctant to do that. But all the research points to the fact that this is critical to building deep, sustained relationships. Because Jeff Hall did some research that basically shows to make a friend or even a close friend or a best friend, you know, on average, it takes dozens to hundreds of hours, you know, of time together. But you can actually kind of shortcut that. Arthur Aaron did research on how can we accelerate that feeling of closeness and he got people to feel like lifelong friends in 45 minutes and the critical thing was opening up the critical thing was revealing more about yourself and not not just facts but feelings concerns issues and this is just correlated with a whole bunch of other issues you know if you if people who if you don't open up 
when 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 long-term friendships have more small talk, they're less satisfying. It's like we need to talk about those issues. And, you know, not being vulnerable can not only hurt your relationships, it can also hurt you. Uh, University of Pennsylvania did some research that basically shows, you know, not like keep bottling things up, not sharing them, you know, with your friends is more likely to prolong minor illnesses. It's correlated with the first heart attack and, you know, with with potentially not surviving bad heart attacks. So these are very, very serious things. And what I think in terms of the pandemic and opportunity, you know, it's like I think we've we've got kind of, you know, an unfortunate gift here in the sense of we've all been struggling. So to actually open up and talk about what we've been dealing with, what we've been struggling with, how difficult the pandemic is, that's very relatable. And some of our fears are unjustified. Some of our fears are unjustified. Psychology talks about what's called the beautiful mess effect, which is we have this asymmetry where we're so afraid to open up and talk to people about our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, because we think we'll be judged and exiled to a distant village, you know, but the truth is when other people open up to us, we rarely feel that way. We don't immediately like dismiss them. Usually we don't immediately. So the truth is we have to think from the other person's perspective. They're, they're not likely to, you know, to, to push us away. So vulnerability is super critical in relationships. How did research for that section of the book change the way you specifically view and interact with your friends? Oh, I mean, o- opening up a little bit more, being less concerned with facts and a little more with feelings, you know, to, to actually talk about what's what's going on, how it's impacting you, how you're feeling, what your concerns are. Because I, I think, you know, there's sometimes there's there's a tendency towards like conversation to just be data transmission. You know, it's just like transmitting facts. And we we need to open up a little bit more about like how we're how we're feeling, what's going on, because those are the things that really lead to someone understanding it. And it's reciprocal. You know, once you say things that someone else knows, you know, might be might make you look bad, you know, might be able to be used against you. Once you say that you're trusting the other person and that's the best way to get someone else to trust you. Once you say something which you know, it was a little scary. That tells the other person that this is a safe place, that we can we can do that, that they can feel it. And I talk about in the book, I talk about what I call the scary rule, which is if it's scary, say it. You know, now, now you could be incremental, you know, you don't have to you don't have to confess to any any murders at Christmas dinner. I mean, just like, you know, start start small. But if the other person reciprocates, you know, then you can incrementally, you know, keep deepening that because Otherwise, you just got all these worries bouncing around in your head until you share them with somebody else. And, you know, that's that's what's really going to let someone else feel like they know you. And that's what's going to make you feel like you're actually known. And those are some critical aspects emotionally I think we all need. I have this belief that our need for friendships goes back to kind of tribalism. But I don't think that explains the whole story. What is it about friendships that are so critical about our health, our longevity, and as you mentioned, even potentially more so than our spouse. Like, what is it that we get from a friend that we can't get anywhere else that has such a direct impact on us? Well, that goes back to the voluntary issue. You know, it's like, it's it's with a spouse, with a boss, with kids, there's a level of obligation. Now, 
maybe you have a great relationship with your spouse, your boss, and your kids, and the obligation is not that high, but it's still obligation. With friends, you know, you can walk away at any time. You know, it's a you know, money back guarantee. You know, there's 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 no obligation there. You're only there because you want to be, and they're only there because they want to be. And so so you know, I've I've said it's like friendship doesn't have institution, but that fragility is what proves its purity. You know, people don't they don't have to do it out of obligation. And so you wouldn't be there if it didn't make you happy. And that's why friendship kind of wins a happiness game, because there is no other thing pushing you towards spending time with these people if you don't have to, you know. And so that's why, you know, when you look at the health data, it's like, you know, women dealing with breast cancer, a spouse has zero effect on recovery. Meanwhile, number of friends, you know, actually correlates with recovery. Men coming back from a heart attack, you know, again, spouse has zero effect. Number of friends has a big effect. It was uh, Robin Dunbar, a uh, really you know big deal professor at Oxford, who's done a lot of research on uh, networks relationships. He looked at all the research, and he came back and he basically said, one year after a heart attack, you know, it's you know what predicts whether you're alive or not is like basically whether you smoke and how many friends you have. He's like, yeah, the other the, the other stuff matters. He's like, but the the delta is so huge. Just the, the those two things you know, are more impactful, grossly more impactful than anything else. And it's that voluntariness, you know, where we never feel trapped, you know, in a friendship versus potentially how we can on occasion feel trapped in, in other relationships. And that, that purity is what, is what gives us so many positive effects. It's a great point, but a staggering statistic. What is it about the quantity of friendships? Of course, I'm sure that's making the assumption that they're good friends. But what do you think it is about, I've got two really good friends, or I've got seven uh, that has a positive impact? I mean, a big part of it is that, you know, all friendships, all friendships aren't created equal. You know, so we often get different things from different friends. That's part of it. But I would say that the biggest part of it is very likely to come from the fact of, you know, friendship, but this is also how we tie into the issue of community, where if you measure somebody's happiness and, or, and they have five friends, but those friends don't know each other. So it's like a hub and spoke type relationship where you are the center and you know those five friends, they don't know each other versus someone else who has five friends, but all of those five friends are friends. The latter person is much more likely to be happy because you have this issue of community. You know, to have five friends who you can talk to separately, it's a positive thing. I highly recommend it. <laughs> but to have five friends who can all coordinate, five friends who all can relate and share information, if you're having problems, one friend can say to another, hey, I, you know, you need some help. We need, we, need, we need to talk about this. You know, now you have, you don't have support from five different like nodes. You know, you have the entire network kind of reaching out and supporting you and there for you. And that's just so much more powerful. So number of friends is, you know, great. But it's like, I think once you have more friends, it's it's more likely that they're going to meet, they're going to connect, you're going to introduce them. And now you not only get the benefits of friendship, you also get the benefits of community. As you were saying that, I was thinking about how I play softball with the same group of guys that I've known since I was 18. So yeah. literally 20 years. We're, we're getting old now. Like we played a game and I'm still <laughs> sore. It's true. 
And what I've noticed the older I get is we've transitioned from the competitiveness to just waiting to have a few beers in the parking lot, like genuinely, <laughs> right? And I'm not kidding when I say I've known most of these guys since yeah. college-ish. We say the same things a lot of the time. We have the yeah. same conversation, but it's some sense of freedom, relatability, lack of judgment, even the barbs that get thrown are thrown with love. And it's just... um I don't know. It's like meditative. It, it's a weird thing, but it, it lines up with all that you're saying. And I think anybody who has that can identify with it. No, it's, it's really critical. I mean, to especially when you have when you have an activity that it's built around, because like I said, with the Notre Dame research on phone calls, it was like staying in touch you know, consistently is a big, big part of it. The other, right. you know, like I said, time is number one. And you have done, I mean, it's one of the things I recommend in the book. That's one of the smartest things for maintaining and deepening relationships. And that is ritualizing it where yes. it's one thing to make time, but to figure out a new way each week or each every two weeks, or, that's hard. That requires a lot of logistics. And frankly, it requires thought and thought is hard. So like, it's better to have a ritual. It's like playing softball. It's like, yes, we all get together. We do this. You know, that and and like you said, this has worked out for you guys for two decades. It's like so those those rituals with friends are really powerful. This week's episode is brought to you by the Lifestyle Intelligence LQ app. Human intelligence is wonderfully complex. Historically, researchers have relied on IQ tests to measure what people know and how quickly they can solve problems. These tests alone do not account for the full range of people's thinking abilities. They don't predict success in school, life, or business. Then the concept of emotional intelligence came to be as a way to describe another set of thinking skills, the ability to recognize and regulate emotion and to use social awareness in problem solving. Recently, a new measured intelligence has emerged, coined lifestyle intelligence. Lifestyle intelligence is a learned pathway toward balanced, healthy living. Through three-minute daily focus audio tracks delivered five days a week, each track supports steady progress towards balanced, healthy living. Successful living is built on rhythmic consistency, and there is nothing more important than a solid backbeat. The LQ app gives listeners the ability to maximize their quality of life by reprogramming personal habits, enhancing sensory awareness, and building a transformative body of knowledge around the conversations we have with ourselves. LQ is available for iPhone users to download from the Apple App Store. Go to lqapp.co slash smart and click get the app for a one-month free trial to all new users. That's lqapp.co slash smart and click get the app. And now back to the episode. I'm so glad you brought that up because I'm sure there's people out there going, hey, I understand this. You know, I'm in a new area. That's always tough. I've moved. My job takes me around. How do I get this? I know the importance of it, but how do I get it? And things like find that ritual. So go find the hobby that links you and then do it in a kind of standardized way. Takes the thought out of it. It's a really good tip there. A absolutely. It's like to make to make it a habit, to ritualize it. You know, it's like that's. We all know, you know, the, the difficulties of scheduling and everything. Right? Once somebody puts that like concrete into their schedule, you all do it. It makes a huge difference. You touched on uh, Carnegie's book. Yeah. What is the thing that he got wrong based on today's research and what you've done that you think we need to be aware of? 
I mean, first and foremost, you know, the majority of what Dale Carnegie recommends has been validated by research. The majority of it really does work. It's a pretty good template, you know, for the early parts of relationships. That said, you know, every everything he talked about was kind of anecdotal. And the one thing he did get wrong was he tells you to put your per, put yourself in the other person's shoes to see things from their perspective. And the research is really consistent on this. We are terrible at that. Uh, <laughs> Nick, Nicholas Epley is a researcher at the University of Chicago and Basically, he, he found that, first and foremost, we only read uh, the thoughts and feelings of, of strangers accurately 20% of the time. With friends, that reaches 30%. With spouses, we reach 35%. So whatever, whatever you think your spouse is thinking, two-thirds of the time you're wrong. And so we, we're not great at that, at least baseline on average. And, uh, and Epley's research also showed that when we... When we force it, you know, often uh, we, we actually get worse sometimes. So that was the one thing that Carnegie got wrong. But like I said, overall, it's good stuff. It's just that Carnegie was writing that largely as a business book. Carnegie was writing that book largely f- trying to make uh, contacts. Trying, and the thing about it is everything in there is pretty simple and easy, which is is good in terms of, you know, getting people to use it. But it also ends up being a little manipulative because it's 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 only the easy things to do. And the truth is deep friendships, you know, non-transactional friendships, they require, you know, bigger investments. Those are the, the costly signals that we need to display to show to someone else that we really care, that they really matter. And the costly signals others need to show us for us to feel like, hey, this is somebody I can really rely on. So it's a good starting point. It's good for business relationships. It's good for the beginning, the very beginning of friendships. Um, but uh, but you're, you're, you're not going to be reading other people's minds and seeing things from their perspective. And if you want to have a deep friendship, we, we need to go a little bit past Del Carnegie. Well, that's helpful. And you touched on something there that I also wanted to mention as you were talking about how we can't really read other people. You have the anecdote of can you judge a book by its cover? What did you surmise in going through that section of our ability to judge others? Like I said, in general, we're pretty bad at it um, in terms of reading people's thoughts and feelings. Uh, One thing, you know, but we can get a little bit better. Usually that's by by motivation. Our brains are generally pretty lazy uh, about these things. But if we get motivated, if we feel like there's a, a real sense of loss or gain. So when people try and read, each, or when people are reading each other on first dates, they become more accurate because now there's something ah. on the line, you know, versus otherwise. Um, so if there's a feeling of loss or gain, you know, our accuracy goes up a little bit. But frankly, we're, we're just not that great at it. Um, one one big myth is, you know, a lot of people love body language. They, they think that we're going to find some body language Rosetta Stone. And that's just not the case, because if somebody's shivering, you don't know if it's because they're nervous or because they're cold. You know, it's like we can't be sure, you know, especially if we don't have a baseline on them. But what one thing that is valuable is that if you can hear someone but you can't see them. Empathic accuracy only drops off like 4%. If you can see someone, but you can't hear them, empathic accuracy drops off 54%. So if we're going to focus on something to try and read people accurately, listen to their voice, not really their body language. And beyond that, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the, the better way to try and 
read others, understand what's going on with them, is to focus less on trying to to use our reading skills, which like I said, are generally pretty poor, but to make efforts to try and make the other person more readable, to get them to send a stronger signal, you know, and I talk about a number of methods for that in the book. Well, you know, I'm going to have to ask you about one of them. The thing is, like I said, our reading skills are generally pretty poor, but there are things we can do to make the other person more readable. Because if somebody has like a Botox level poker face, you know, you're, you're not... You're not going to, it doesn't matter if you're Sherlock Holmes, they're not giving you anything. But first and foremost, we need to think more about context. If you're just having a cup of coffee with somebody, you know, there's not much there versus like, you know, what if you're playing basketball with them? You're going to see how they make decisions. You're going to see how they react. You're going to see whether they cheat or not. When you put somebody in a situation where you're both doing things, they're going to be sending you more signals about who they are, how they behave, what choices they make. Beyond that, you know, we usually think like, oh, I'm reading somebody like this is going to be one on one. But that's a weaker way to do it. If we involve more people in it, we're going to see more sides of this person's personality. If the only time you dealt with someone was in the presence of their boss, would you think you were seeing the whole them? Right. It's like, no. So it's like seeing how someone interacts with their significant other, with their kids, with their friends, with you. You know, that's going to give you a lot. You're going to see a lot more facets of the diamond, you know, to, to figure this out. Beyond that, it's like asking about, we usually try and be polite and diplomatic. But if we ask about more controversial things, if we, if we get the person to react more, we can see you know, like, are they more neurotic? Are they very reactive? Are they very calm? You know, is this an issue that's serious to them? By raising issues that are a little bit more provocative, people are going to send us more accurate signals versus when you just discuss these kind of like tepid, tepid lukewarm topics. You know, you're, you're, you're not going to see much. You're going to kind of get the standard pattern. So there's a lot of techniques we can use to try and get people to send stronger signals that make it easier for us to know what's going on in their head. When do you think that skill is most important? Because obviously I'm thinking about when you're trying to find your romantic partner, right? If you're dating, yeah. when else would that come into play? Maybe business partners, things along those lines? Negotiations. I mean, you know, to really, everybody's probably going to put up a front that they're very confident and secure and maybe they don't need this deal and to, you know, to present more information, to involve potentially other people, to present scenarios, to raise issues where you really see just how reactive they are. There's another section of, of, of that, of the, of the, the, uh, can you judge a book by its cover? I also get into lie detection. Yeah. And most of the, you know, poly, polygraph doesn't work. You know, we usually think it's, it's, it's just emotions that anxiety is a cue for lying. And that's not the case, you know, but one of the more powerful techniques, you know, that we can use to detect lies, to try and get past what people are showing us and get to the accurate thing is to ask unanticipated questions, you know, is, is because people can't generally can't do enough research to plug a hole in every possible lie. And the, one of the examples I use in the book is, you know, if you're a bartender and somebody comes in who is obviously underage, well, if you ask them, how old are you? They're going to say 21. But if I ask them, what year were you born? Well, now they're probably going to have to do some math. They probably didn't think about that in advance. You or I can immediately snap out 
what year we were born. But somebody who's lying, oh, wait, I, oh, uh, and now it becomes much more clear. You know, anxiety and emotions are not a great, you know, signal at all in terms of lying. What is, is cognitive load, is basically they were able to impre uh, increase police officers' lie detection ability by merely having them shift from asking themselves the question, does it seem like this person is lying, to the question, does it look like they have to think hard? Because, because the real issue is lying takes a lot of mental horsepower. You know, we need to remember the true story. We need to remember the lie. We need to make sure they don't overlap. We need to constantly monitor the other person to make sure they're not catching on. We need to put on a performance that is aligned with the lie and not the truth. It takes a lot of work. Anything we can do that increases the amount of work and effort it's it's like your it's like when your computer is chewing on a hard problem. All of a sudden, right. the processor <laughs> slows down, the pages aren't loading. What the heck is going on? That's what we deliberately want to do because the truth is usually pretty knee jerk and easy. Meanwhile, lies, like I said, you have to update all of this stuff in real time, and so that's why what year were you born works a lot better than how old are you. Yeah. Okay. You just validated like my whole. Uh, existence from the ages of 18 to 21. I used my brother's ID. <laughs> I don't know if I should be telling this to people, but we're already in that rabbit hole. And I'll never forget, quick story time here, I'll never forget the most challenging one. I went to Florida. There's like, there was some outdoor whole thing. I don't even remember what it was, but a big, yeah. there's all these bars and stuff. And I went with some friends. The cop like looks at the ID and he goes, you know, this isn't you. And he starts asking questions, but he's asking the tough ones. Yeah. He's asking, what year <laughs> are you born? It was a military ID. Uh, and so he asks like, <laughs> you know, where, where was your dad stationed? All these things. Of course I knew everything like yeah. instantly. I knew everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. They had at one point three cops like pressuring and I withstood the pressure and made mm -hmm. it through the gates. And it was this triumphant moment for me. And uh, to your point, it was because it was like, what are we going to do from here? They even asked me to sign my name, uh -huh. but because he was my older brother, I had modeled my signature after him because I looked uh -huh. up to him. Yeah. So I knew his signature. Like there was, there was almost no way around it. I don't know. Funny story to, to tap into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Eric, I wanted to talk to you about, um, pivot in a little bit to, as we started at the beginning, the idea of marriage. And one of the things that I think I knew intuitively, but not to the extent you cover is, you know, marriage is good and bad, depending on if the marriage is good or bad. Like, I don't think I realized the impact of a weak marriage as opposed to not being married at all. Can you talk a little bit about how we get this fallacy of, you know, marriage is a great thing. It extends life. It's healthy. And how Really, that's only the case in a small instance. Well, I mean, most of the stuff you you see, like in the mainstream, says you know, oh, it's great. Married married people are happier. Married people are healthier. You know, but that's making a mistake called uh, survivor bias, where basically, if you just look at all the people who are currently married, measure their happiness. All people who aren't married measure the happiness. Sure, the married people are going to come out, you know, happier. But you're asking the question wrong. You know, the, the issue is, if you want to know if getting married makes you happier, 
then you need to include all the divorced, separated, and widowed people in with the married people because they have all they've all you know they have all gotten married at some point versus the single the single people. And when you do that, no, what you see is married people on average aren't happier. What you see is that a is that marriage doesn't make you happy. In fact, roughly two years after someone gets married, their happiness levels return to baseline. So the the lesson we need to take, I'm not, I, I have a whole warning for <laughs> the, the love and marriage <laughs> chapter where I'm like, you are going to hate me. Uh, but, you know, I'm just trying to tell the truth here, please. Um, but, but the lesson we can take away, the not necessarily depressing lesson we can take away is rather than thinking that getting married is a panacea, you know, it's not. It's a lot more like Las Vegas. And that is that basically marriage doesn't make you happy. A happy marriage makes you happy. And an unhappy marriage can make you very unhappy. You know, is that people who are like basically, if you look at the happiness research, like human beings are pretty resilient, especially far more resilient than we think we are when we're actually dealing with something negative. The majority of stuff, a shocking amount of stuff, a few years later, we recover from it. You know, in, in the data, the only thing I've seen that produces a permanent dent, you know, in happiness where people never fully re return to baseline is extended unemployment and divorce. You know, it, it really makes an impact. And so divorce is really bad, but there is good news. And I talk, I talk about the good news in the book, too. Uh, the good news is that the happiest marriages today are happier than any marriages ever have been. Because basically what we've seen over the centuries, and I, I do a quick, like, multi-century <laughs> view of how marriage has changed, uh, is that in the past, you know, it was very regimented. It was tied to church and community and arranged marriages. It was very formal. You couldn't get divorced. It was very formal. It was very serious. It was very rigid. And that kept marriage stable. It wasn't always fair or nice, you know, but it was stable. Now, marriage is much less regimented, much less rigid, far easier to get divorced. So marriage is more fragile, you know, but that has increased the variability. Basically, it's much easier for marriages to go off the rails. But if you do things right, people now have the freedom to be themselves, the freedom to negotiate how they want to live their lives. So basically what I say up front is, you know, if you do marriage right now, you can have a happier marriage than anybody throughout all of history has ever had. And that is Eli Finkel, as uh, the researcher at Northwestern, he showed this, a lot of Stephanie Kuntz's work. You can just rule. Your marriage will be more awesome than anything. But we have, we have to be deliberate about it because we don't have society pushing these rules on us like they used to. So we kind of have to create our own if we want to have those happiest marriages ever. Mm. Well, given the book is, you know, a summary of a lot of things based on relationships, and you just convinced us all that, you you know, buyer beware if you're going to get married, <laughs> drop some knowledge or some tips on us on how to create that um, that blissful happily ever after. I mean, what's what's really interesting is that, you know, people often people often focus on how to reduce the negatives in their marriage, understandably. Seems intuitive, seems to make sense. But the truth is that the majority of the research shows that actually what's more important is increasing the positives. And we, we don't do enough of that. 
you know, that for an ideal marriage, John Gottman, who's the leading researcher on love and marriage, basically says you want a five to one ratio. You want five good things for every one negative thing. And he also found that 69% of long-term negatives, long-term issues in a marriage never get resolved. Those things that you have you've been fighting about for five years now, they're probably never going to get resolved. Now, that might sound depressing to some people, but that 69% stat is true for, for people who are unhappily married. It's also true for people who are happily married. The point is that you don't have to solve everything, which is kind of reassuring. You don't have to nail down, fix, and like slam the gavel on every single issue. It's more about how you regulate conflict than resolving conflict and being a little bit more compassionate. So the issue is we, we need to think more in terms of that ratio. Some people have some very serious problems in their marriage, but they can still be happy because they've got enough positive things, enough good things going on that it offsets that. And I think we, like I said, we're a lot more focused on how can I reduce the negative. It would be beneficial to think more about increasing the positive. One, one example is that, you know, there's kind of entropy that goes on in a marriage after so long. Energy kind of dies down, regresses to the mean. And that's what the data shows. But we need that feeling that happened early on in dating. And usually we think, oh, you know, well, we were in love. So we did a lot of fun, exciting things together. That's true. But the reverse is also true. Because you were doing fun and exciting things together, that's why you fell in love. So they're both true, and that can be a shortcut to try and revitalize a long-term relationship, revitalize a marriage, is to never stop dating, to keep doing exciting things. Researchers took two groups, and they had, they had people do exciting things, and they had another date go, uh, no, sorry, another, another, other couples go on dates that were pleasant. Pleasant lost. Wow. You know, exciting really matters. It's called emotional contagion. The idea that whatever we're feeling in the environment around us gets associated with the people we're with. So if you're with your spouse and you're, you know, going to concerts, you're going on roller coasters, you're going horseback riding, you're traveling to other exciting countries, you associate with them. That keeps those feelings alive. Meanwhile, if it's another night of pizza and Netflix... Eh, you know, quality time is not all that great if you're just spending more time being bored together. Right. So to revitalize and increase the positive, we need to, it's, we're outsourcing basically. <laughs> Go do exciting stuff and let that positively influence the two of you. And by increasing the positive, sometimes we can actually do more than by, by reducing the negative. I talk about reducing the negative, but I, I think often we get more bang for our buck in terms of increasing the positive. I really think that what you just talked about is kind of a summary for your book, which is everybody has opinions about the things you write about. They're either right or wrong. If they're right, often we don't necessarily know why. And if we're wrong, they will be shocking. That's how that was my experience with reading your book. Right. So I love this part because I've always said that the reason I believe relationships work is because everybody has their crazy or everybody has their issues or their negatives. You just find the person whose negatives don't bother you that much. It's the only way it's going to happen, right? You're not going to change it. And it reminded me of actually um, when you were talking about, you know, the part getting to know somebody and putting them in, in situations where you see more of themselves. 
couple of months after I met my wife, I called her Friday morning and I said, Hey, do you want to drive down about eight hours down North Carolina and go camping on the beach? So I gave her about six hours warning, said, we're going to go be in a tent for three days. I've known you for like a couple of months. I don't know if it was conscious or not, but what I did know is like, I'm only going to marry somebody who this is and I, this is an <laughs> ideal thing for them, right? Like yeah. it's going to be sandy. It's going to be hot. It's going to be gross, but we're at the beach. And we both now looking back, say we were both doing the same thing, like trying to figure out, can you hang with that? Cause I like it. So putting yeah. people in these situations where you see more of them instead of, like you said, going to coffee. And then when you see, okay, they're a little neurotic about packing things perfectly, but that's actually good because I suck at it. Like, I don't know that that's the thing that a lot of your book in this section highlighted for me. Last thing I want to ask you in the marriage section, you talk about Viagra and I just thought it was the best and funniest story and way to start that. Yeah. Uh, tell, <laughs> tell us about, just give the listeners a little tease. Cause a lot of your book is you weave in the narratives, you weave in the stories, which I like. Why yeah. was that kind of a way you wanted to kick off that section? I mean, you know, basically I tell the story of the development of Viagra, which, you know, first and foremost was was accidental. They were actually working on developing a drug to treat angina. Uh, and they found it had a very interesting side effect, <laughs> and uh, at least in men. And uh, the thing was that, you know, it was like there, at that point there was no treatment for erectile dysfunction. In fact, the, the word erectile dysfunction didn't didn't exist yet, uh, the, you know, and so they found, wow, we have this treatment for this disorder and there's nothing else on the market. And yet you might think, oh, especially with hindsight, it's like you might think, oh God, this is huge, this is a boon. And it was the, nobody wanted this drug to move forward. It was one of the hardest things in drug development ever. There was opposition on moral grounds. There was opposition that, that men wouldn't want it, that they'd be embarrassed to ask for it, that they were, that they were going to get opposition from religious groups. There, it was a nightmare. And it was, it was due to, to two guys, Rooney and Dr. Sal, uh, were these, the two guys who worked at Pfizer who pushed this thing through and they just had to overcome insane obstacles. And I just thought it was really funny that it seems like something that was so simple, so obvious. And, you know, obviously it was fantastic for Pfizer's bottom line. I think their stock price like doubled in a matter of days after its release. But, you know, I kind of end the story with the question, you know, it's like Vi Viagra, Viagra lasts for a few hours, you know, how long does love last for? And it's a, it's, it's an interesting question because I think we have some, we have some varying answers there. Yeah. And I, I did find it funny when you start to realize, wait, you're telling me a drug company had moral issues about this? Like, I don't think I've I've put those two ideas into the same sentence in a while. You know, pharmaceutical company, moral grounds. Pro prob probably more probably more the issue of PR yeah. grounds or concerns about other people's moral judgments, perhaps. But um, but now it was probably the biggest probably was the biggest uphill battle in drug development ever. Well, listen, if you want more stories such as uh, how Viagra came to market or, you know, one of the best female con artists ever to live and much more tied into at its deepest part relationships, what it is to make them, how we extend them, the role they play and what we've gotten wrong about that knowledge. 
Your book is an excellent resource. It's called Plays Well with Others, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Relationships is Mostly Wrong, as we've discussed, right? Not entirely, but mostly wrong. Um, <laughs> and, you know, as of the time people listen, this book will be out. It's not out yet. It's brand new, but really enjoyed it. Eric, thanks so much for being on the show. Wanted to turn it over to you and say, you know, I know you are a prolific writer and you're out there on social and, and all that. Um, where can people find you and follow along with what you're putting out in the world? I mean, both my books, Plays Well with Others and uh, Embark Up Their Own Tree, are both available on Amazon and other retailers. Um, my web's probably the best the best way to follow uh, the research I do is I do a uh, I do a weekly newsletter that's all about basically improving your life based on science and I try to make it funny and uh, you can find that um, my the URL on my website is a little difficult for some people to pronounce uh, it's a Japanese word so probably the best way is to go to ericbarker.org e r i c b a r k e r dot o r g uh, or Google my name Eric Barker uh, but I put out a weekly newsletter that will basically tell you scientifically what's true, what's not, and how to improve your life. I love it. Well, Eric, again, thank you so much for being on the show. This week's guest was Eric Barker. As always, the interview was hosted by Chris Stemp and edited by yours truly, John Rojas. Eric's book, Plays Well With Others, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Relationships Is Mostly Wrong, is available wherever books are sold. And now for the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the podcast, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.